New York Artists Collective. Hello and welcome to the New York Artists Collective podcast. This next one's about. This is the podcast where we interview an artist to discuss the creative songwriting process behind one of their songs. Um, I am your host, Stephanie Manns, singer-songwriter and one of the New York Artists Collective co-producers. And today's guest is Matt Butler, critically acclaimed singer-songwriter raised right here in New York City. And he is here to talk about his song, Fear and Desire. Matt Butler, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, you did a show for us. We started this in 2017, so I think it was that year. Wow. Time was. Yeah, and I think, so you did a round with Angela Aaliyah, so our, one of our co-founders, and I think it was Ryan Leddick, if I'm not wrong. It was. Yeah, it, it was indeed. It's quite a diverse round, that one. Yeah. Um, do you do a lot of songwriters around, or was that? You want to hear something crazy? I think that was my first and the only one I've ever done. No way. Yeah, played shows with other singer-songwriters and so forth, but I, I don't know if I've ever done it in, in that format before where it's all everybody's up on stage together and we take turns like that. I think that would be cool. It's it's a very sort of common format in Nashville and in the South, but um, and certainly in country music, which, you know, yeah. you're certainly an Americana songwriter. But in New York, it's it's one of those things, you know, we people seem to love it. They just It just doesn't seem to be around as much but let's talk about you why not why not so Matt you're from New York City originally um so growing up in New York when, when did you decide to become an artist how did that work for you you know music first of all music was something that I thought was was very intimidating when I was younger so I didn't really start playing you know with any degree of seriousness uh until I was maybe 14 or 15 years old I I learned a little bit of guitar when I was a little kid and I played like the recorder, you know, in class, in music class. And I actually, I played the French horn. That was my first, the first instrument I ever, <laughs> I ever studied. And I got a, about as good as, as I was able to play the Marine Corps march. And then I, and then I quit. I guess it wasn't really doing it for me in general. And I tried singing in some like Gilbert and Sullivan plays that were in my school, <laughs> you know, in, in the, mm-hmm. the Mikado and, HMS Pinafore and things like that. I'm really, really giving myself a lot of street cred here for this French Matt, I thought you were quite a cool guy. You're, you're ruining this for me. <laughs> yeah. French horn and HMS Pinafore. Yeah. <laughs> this is, and, well, that's, and, and that's why I've spent the past two years touring in prisons, you know, in order to come back. Get some, get some street cred back. Yeah, from the Gilbert and Sullivan topsy-turvy days. But... Uh, I, I just think music was so frightening. Uh, there were things that I was really good at when I was younger, naturally, academically. And then I was, I was, I was a good baseball player and a really good uh, wrestler. Actually, I was on the wrestling team and I was, I was really good at those things. And I was really bad or not necessarily very bad, but just not as good at music. Just didn't, uh, music just seemed really, really scary and not, and it was not accessible. You know, it was sort of like a, a secret language or secret code. And I was prone to like wanting to do the things I, I was, you know, like kind of insecure kid. So I did things that came naturally to me and, you know, and kind of like sought validation for those things rather than risking failing at, at things that were harder for me and, and sort of not being validated for mm-hmm. those things. If that, if that oh yeah. Sense. Everyone likes to be good at something and to be told that they're good at it. Right. And then, and the other things that were hard, I was just like, well, I'm just not going to do those things, you know, cause, cause, to, you know, I just don't want to fail at them. So music was some, was like was like a more of like a desperation kind of thing. I think I've said this to some people before that I feel oftentimes with it 
in the past and to this day that like, you know, sometimes it's like 51% of me wants to get on stage and 49% of me wants to run away. And it's sort of just like the matter of that, like 1% tipping it over. And it's, it's not really even about like 49% wants to run and 51% Mm -hmm. is, is just like so desperate to express something and to do it that it, it, it's really more of a desperation than than like a intrigue or or being excited about it. It's just it sort of had to be in order to push me into actually taking the risk to play. Was the forty nine percent that's holding you back? Is that the sort of the fear of it, you know, not being good, or is that a fear of performing, or what, what drives that? Yeah, all of those things. I think it's just like self consciousness, you know, okay. and uh, f- yeah, sure, fear. That's probably the most concise way to describe it. Of course, it's very hard to put yourself out there on a stage and say, this is me, this is my life, these are my flaws, um, please love me, <laughs> you know. Um, and then if, if someone goes, well, I just did, didn't really dig it, it wasn't my thing, you know, it's, it's hard to hear. Oh yeah, that is true. That's a really good segue, thanks for that. So your song that we're going to talk about is called Fear and Desire. So is, that, is, is it Fear and Desire as in like the 49% and the 51%? Uh, in the context of that song... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, is, that's, that sounds like that's, that's my lyric. That could be the lyric. That's the song is a pretty interesting story of how it came about. I found that I, at the time I was writing that song, I was I was journaling a lot. And I just found that it seemed everything that I wrote about was either like a fear or a desire. And that I um, found that phrase, fear and desires, you know, popping up a lot in my in my notebooks. So I just kind of kept track of it because it, it has a pretty cool ring to it, if, if I don't say so myself. And then at one point, I actually heard someone else use the phrase and it rather than kind of bumming me out, it sort of validated the, it sort of affirmed the title. Mm-hmm. But I actually heard Joseph Campbell. Do you know Joseph Campbell? He's he's deceased, but he was this amazing writer and mythologist and sort of this just wonderful personality. And he did this incredible PBS special with Bill Moyers called The Power of Myth. And it's very like, you know, sort of life affirming. And it, it, he's, he sort of coined the phrase, the hero's journey. And a lot of amazing movies have been. Um, and I heard him talk about, you know, the, the phrase fear and desire. And I think in the context of like Buddhism and that the things that keep us in, the, in a state of suffering or separation, you know, in, are encompassed by, you know, just fear and desire. And uh, it would kind of like shocked me when I heard him say, say it. And so it was just like, all right, there's definitely a song in there. And I will write that song. That's what we do as songwriters. So I mean, you tell the song from two different perspectives, right? So what what made you think of that? It just kind of happened. The The story itself kind of came from f- an experience of, of like what it, what I f- felt was like being haunted by somebody. Like I felt like there was, <laughs> I feel like I sound crazy saying it, but that there was like somebody, you know, that there was like a presence in my life for a couple of weeks, you know, and that I was getting hints at the, at the nature of the story, you know, on a, like sort of spoon fed hints of it. And I remember I hadn't worked on the song beyond the first verse in, in like maybe like a year because the album came out and I just kind of went on the road and was busy and then started thinking about the song again. And the second verse came to me almost in completion while I was in the shower and I like got out of the shower and, and wrote it down. I had a sense of this character, this, this woman that is named Sophie that I just sort of felt was like with me. I, I, it was so bizarre. I, I would feel like when I'd come home, from sessions or whatever. And I would be sitting it on my couch watching television. I felt like she was like sitting there like watching television with me and I could almost have like a conversation with her. 
And it, it started to get really weird. And I started to feel like she was sort of sending me, you know, signals and messages and things like that. And, and kind of in this classic ghost hunters fashion, it was sort of like a, a duty I accepted to tell her story in order that she might be set free of it in some capacity. And, you know, I feel like I almost like made a deal with her that I would, that, it, you know, she would help me write it, that I would perform it and I would record it and I would put it out. And, uh, and I didn't know what the story was, but I, I didn't realize how dark it was until like I started to kind of like get an, in, an intuition about it. And that, you know, she was sort of this tortured figure and she, you know, she commits suicide at the end of the song. And, and, uh, that wasn't really revealed to me until sort of towards the end. But I, I had no idea what I was writing until it was done. That, that is so much more context for me for that song than I, I previously had when I listened to it. Okay, well, let's take a listen. Naked on the edge of the bed The clip and the ashtray is smoldering red She stares out the window But turns when she says Fear and desire is all I've got in my head Fear and desire make me wish I was dead She lights a green candle through the flame and says now that you've had me things will never be the same take what you want but it won't take away the pain cause fear and desire is all we've got beside shame fear and desire is all we've got left to blame And now I 
to pray She warned me I should leave But didn't mind if I stayed Always kept the windows open Said it but in the day I was too scared to move As I watched her fall away So that was Fear and Desire by Matt Butler. Matt, you know, we were just talking in the break whilst we were listening because we do that on podcasts. Um, It's like it's real life. Uh, (laughs) I was just saying I listened to that this morning on on the train and um, I got so into it. um, And I like musically, I find it very interesting. I really liked what you did with with the guitars and the breaks that you had in there. And then um, it finished sort of and I I was like, oh, it's it's finished. And I was so bummed out because I really got into that. Um, so I, I, and I, I was just saying also, I find you're right. Obviously the lyrics are very dark, but I just find the music very sort of uplifting and I like the way that it, it took me along. Well, I'm glad that it it had that effect. And, and, um, I think it's important, you know, to keep the aesthetic, you know, priority sometimes over the message or the, over the story or lyric, because otherwise it feels kind of forced. If the song itself is so sort of enjoyable, to listen to, then it's, it's interesting because it almost becomes transparent. Like the message just becomes transparent and then the listener can really fill it with whatever meaning they want to, if the music itself is appealing enough. So let's talk a bit more about your artistic journey, um, what you've been up to and, and so on and so forth. Um, but you started, uh, well, I wouldn't say you started, but you, you gained some notoriety as the lead singer of a New York band called Reckless Sons, which I guess led you on to the title for your debut album, which was Reckless Son. So what took you from the journey of becoming, you know, being in a band to going solo? Well, you know, I, I grew up playing in bands and really being my favorite bands growing up were like Nirvana and hardcore bands like Fugazi and stuff like that. And and then uh, and the, the Clash and the Replacements. And I just like always wanted to be in a band. Because, you know, you played the French horn and you sang Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it was like, as soon as I was able to, you know, dye my hair green and put a safety pin in my ear, I was all about it. And, uh, and I, and I, and I certainly did, you know, and I, and I certainly enjoyed that. And, and, and that band had, some really cool moments and we had some great opportunities and successes and the experience of playing in a group and playing in a hard rock band or a punk band or whatever is great. You know, what I was definitely about at the time, but I always was like a songwriter, you know, it was the thing that I was, I, I never like played guitar cause I wanted to play guitar. I never, you know, I always just wanted to write songs and I thought it was that I always wanted to be in a band, but it was really that I wanted to write songs. And so once I got a little bit older and my life had changed a lot, and I'd had a certain level of experience and degrees of different types of experiences. And my attitudes had really been shifted by life. Um, you know, I found that what I wanted to say, you know, musically had changed a lot and I was no longer able to say what I wanted to say with that same vehicle of expression, you know, like this sort of like the rock band or like the 
punk band kind of thing. Like I just, the songs I wanted to write, like just didn't fit into that. And I had no idea what to do. I mean, I just like was great at like screaming and like bashing on a telecaster and jumping around on stage. And I had never really touched an acoustic guitar my whole life. I, I think the big bridge for me at first was, was Bruce Springsteen. Cause I loved Bruce Springsteen for, you know, for ages. And he's obviously quite a, you know, a rock band experience, but he's he's also one of the greatest songwriters of all time. I got really into uh, the album Southeastern by Jason Isbell. That was like a really big turning point. And I kind of heard him doing certain things that I felt I wanted to do, like as far as what he was saying and how nuanced and how literary his songs were, um, while at the same time being so powerful and tuneful, you know, and aesthetically like, powerful and uh and then i was like all right i guess and then the other and then the last piece of the puzzle i think was i saw ryan adams play solo at carnegie hall and i sort of witnessed the amazing power of what someone could do as a solo performer with an acoustic guitar at that show and so the combination of those elements were kind of like okay, I guess I have to try being like a folk singer songwriter now, you know, and, and I literally had never picked up an acoustic guitar. I, in a lot of ways, just had to sort of relearn music and relearn my approach to it and re and relearn how to sing. And that was about three years ago, three and a half years ago. And you wrote a song that was, um, featured in a, a documentary. It was called, Gen- sorry, the song was just one for a documentary called Generation Found. Correct. And that, that was a big opportunity for me and a, and a big break for me. I think, and that was relatively new for you as a, a solo artist. Yeah, it was amazing. I'm still sort of always in a state of immense gratitude for, to Greg Williams, who directed that film, um, for the opportunity, because it's just like, it just put me in this whole other world. When I, I wrote that song and <clears throat> a lot of people really connected to it, that song got me on tour because the movie got released nationally and people were holding screenings you know, all over the country and there were events and galas and fundraisers and conferences and you name it that the film was associated with due to the, you know, the film's subject matter, which is teenagers and and substance use disorder and drug addiction and recovery high schools. And so I ended up kind of like on tour with the film, sort of supporting the film. And I just, I just got exposed to, you know, so many different worlds and so many people got exposed to my music that you know I wouldn't have been able to reach otherwise and uh you know it just it just completely changed the course of my career I suppose at that at that moment in time you obviously at that point put in the work you had the stagecraft you had done the work for it to just happen mm-hmm. so it's you know when people talk about overnight success I don't believe that I think the overnight success might happen when you've put in all of that work yeah no that's I think that's definitely the case is like, you just have to be, when the opportunity arrives, you're, you're ready to go. There was a documentary I remember seeing on, on the, the you know, the heavy metal band Pantera. No. It's like one of these legendary hard rock heavy metal bands, but there was a, they had a, they had an album that really broke big and same thing. This guy in, was interviewing them and, and said to them, what is it, you know, what's it feel like to be an overnight success? And, and their answer was like, we've been touring for 10 years, man. <laughs> you know, like this, this, they're, you know, they're successful today, but they've been at it for 10 years, figuring out what it required to, you know, create that, that breakthrough music. So I agree with you completely. And moving on to some more recent things, um, you have 
recently performed uh, prison tours. And in 2017, you were honoured as the 2017 Leader in Mental Health Awareness by the National Alliance on Mental Illness, um, alongside a Pulitzer Prize winner, no less, Ron Powers, and Super Bowl champion Keith O'Neill. That's that's also a big year. Yeah, that was a very cool thing and also very unexpected. The prison tour stuff came as a result of working with the film, being around, you know, people that, that, that work in social justice and, and advocacy and prison reform and things like that. And the idea came about to perform in, uh, the Albany County jail at their sheriff's heroin addiction recovery program. And I played the show and the sheriff had brought some news crews down to publicize the unit. And I was already on tour with the film at the time and the stories came out and people saw the stories and and it just was like this, again, this very synchronistic thing. And the show itself, the very first show I played in a, in that, in that jail, it went so well. And I just, I couldn't believe it. And it was one of these things where like, I think part of my, motivation for doing it in the first place was like just to see if I could if I would be too scared or or if it would how how they would receive it talk about like being scared to get on stage it went so well that it was something that I feel like I just I couldn't ignore you know how how well it, it went and how they how much the guys seemed to connect so people started asking me to do it I started to do it and I you know and I was doing it in different states where I was playing gigs related to the film and then I just started to like playing the prison shows more than any of the other gigs I was playing. And I got an opportunity to do a whole tour of state prisons in Ohio. And I received sponsorship from, you know, private individuals as well as organizations to to go on the tour. And it was this totally life-changing thing. You know, you can't talk about prison tours without talking about Johnny Cash. Yeah. You know, yeah. you just can't. Yeah. I think the first vinyl I bought was Live at Folsom Prison. Yeah. Um, and the energy, you could hear it. It was incredible. Um, and he, obviously he took his band and he took the Carters and yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm sure people mention that to you all the time. Yeah. Which is, I mean, there are worse people you could be associated with. Uh, you know, like I, I, I kind of dig it, you know, as, as far as like the connection, because I'm a, I'm very inspired by Johnny Cash. And I, I also went, I've kind of gone on my own journey with Johnny Cash since I started doing the prison tours you know, I was like familiar with him and his signature songs and obviously the idea that he'd performed in prison and I'd seen, you know, Walk the Line and Joaquin Phoenix and everything, but I, I wasn't really that familiar with him. But as I started to really mm-hmm. like do this, you know, for prison, I, at this point I, I did probably a hundred shows in, in prisons last year in 2018. That's a serious journey. And as I was, I was doing it, I, I started to get really, I, I really started to get drawn to Johnny Cash and to learn more about him. And I actually got a copy of his autobiography sitting right in front of me. I, I'm eager to dive in, but I spent a lot of time listening to those, the American recording albums, the, the ones he did with Rick Rubin later in his life, you know, right like before he died. I sort of like, I think of him, you know, as a real, the way I think of Leonard Cohen as like a real hero and not just as a songwriting hero, but as somebody, you know, whose life I really admire. He sounds like he's kind of mentoring you on this journey that you're currently on. I, that's what I wanted to say. I'm glad you said it. Oh, good. <laughs> it really, really pretentious if I said that. No, not at all. It does sound like that. And, I, and the reason I say that is because obviously once you came off that tour, you spent several months on tour 
sorry, as a foundations tour, I think, and you know, starting your own nonprofit organization, the Just One Foundation, Correct. where you do more of this. You, you bring music to incarcerated and underserved populations across the US. So I think it's very fair to say that he's yeah. probably mentoring your journey. Well, I think a lot about that song he wrote, Man in Black, and he talks about the, you know, the people he performs for and why he wears black. And, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of like related to that, but it, but it was also, it, it, one of the things that's, that's, you know, been the, the real case about th- this whole thing and starting the, the foundation, which just was something that we did because it just made sense because I was doing it so much and, and people, and so many people were, were supporting what I was doing that it just made the most sense to create the, the foundation financially. It was, it made the most sense. The, the reality of all of this is that it's just kind of like I've fallen into it. You know, I don't, I don't really know how to explain how it all happened. I can say how I can explain how it happened, like looking back and I can describe how the pieces got put together, but none of it was ever deliberate. You know, there was never like an idea or like a plan. I wasn't thinking that like one day this is what I was going to, like, this was my, inroad like i was going to start touring in prisons and start a nonprofit foundation the re- best way it got put was by a friend of mine um who said to me he said it's great that you've been able to just get out of the way and let this happen and that i didn't uh dismiss any of it because it's been so unconventional and so out of the box and so sort of like off the beaten path it certainly sounds like a path is showing itself to you yeah that's how it feels yeah, and the experiences were just so powerful, and I've really gained quite a lot of, of, of insight um, about myself, different parts of the country, and just the circumstances. That, that there was quite a, a lot of my own bubble that was burst as far as a kid who grew up in New York City, you know, and spending all this time kind of like being adopted almost in these different parts of the country and you know, living in rural Southeast Tennessee and playing in, in jails there and prisons there. And then like just spending all this time in jails in Virginia or Maryland. And people would just, you know, open their homes to me. And the adventure of it was really quite something that tour, especially the foundations tour was, it was directly after the warp tour. We started it, the warp tour ended in Florida and we started the foundations tour in Florida, went everywhere from me to the East coast, you know, we, we went as far out as Las Vegas and Utah. It was just, what a way to see the country. I'll tell you that. Your journey has, has it's, it's been, it sounds like it's been a whirlwind up until now. And I think it's going to go in some, some different directions for you. And I'm very excited to see what happens for you. So Matt, do you have anything coming out that you would like to mention? Um, websites or Instagrams or things where people can find your music? Sure. Well, my website is uh, mattbutlersongs.com. My Instagram is Instagram slash Matt Butler songs. And my Facebook is Facebook slash Matt Butler songs. And uh, that was my last single. There'll be some content coming out being released by the Just One Foundation this year, you know, uh, probably in the next couple in the next month or two months, actually, which I'm excited about. We'll be putting our first pieces of content out and sort of announcing some of our plans. I am excited to write some more music, you know, now that I'm home, you know, I'm not good at writing on the road. I get distracted pretty easily. So, you know, my plan is to write some new tunes now. You know, I'm sure we would love to have you back for a songwriter circle at some point. If you are still in New York, I know you're very busy and you'll be touring, but you are always welcome at an NYC show. You're part of the family. Thank you so much. And I'd love to play sometime too. So let me know if there's ever a spot. I will do. Matt, this has been such a pleasure chatting to you. I am so excited to hear 
what happens next for you on your your musical journey um, with the foundation, with your own music. Please stay in touch with us and uh, everyone should go and follow you right now. <laughs> yes, please do. Come, come, come follow along, my friends. Okay, Matt Butler, thank you very much. Thanks, Steph. Matt Butler there. What a lovely guy. I really enjoyed that conversation. You can find out more about Matt and his nonprofit, the Just One Foundation, at j1foundation.org. And of course, more about Matt at mattbutlersongs.com. Now, next week on the show, I have one half of the acoustic duo uh, Scout. Laura Volk will be in the studio, and I'm really looking forward to that discussion. So don't miss that. And if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, why not subscribe if you haven't already? And uh, by all means, please give us a review. We'd love to hear what you think. I'm Stephanie Manns. Thank you so much for listening. See you soon. New York Artists Collective.